We will be returning tonight to 1 John. I was thankful. I received some encouragement from someone this week saying that I could do 10 more sermons on this subject. So <laughs> I don't plan to do that. But I'm very thankful that at least some are finding some encouragement. <clears throat> it is the word of God, unchanging, despite the fact that weak and feeble vessels of dust deliver it. <clears throat> May the transforming power of the Spirit of God fill us now. We're going to read uh, the passage that we have been considering. We're going to uh, start at verse 9 and read through verse 11. I do encourage you, if you can make the time to do so, to read John's Gospel, verse, uh, chapters 13 through 17. Read it very carefully. And then read John's letter. And see what a remarkable student of Jesus he was. Oh, you, will, you will see snippets of things Christ said all through that glorious sermon. Right here embedded in John's letter. It burned in his heart. <clears throat> well, let's stand together and read the first epistle, the first letter, general of John. We'll begin here in verse 8 of chapter 2. Our passage is 9 through 11, but somehow it seems in my thinking to need verse 8 to set it up. So, verse 8, again, a new commandment I write unto you, which thing is true in him and in you. Because the darkness is past, and the true light now shineth. He that saith he is in the light, the true light that was just spoken of, he that saith he is in the light, or professes to be a Christian, and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. That means he continues a faithful and healthy walk with Jesus. He lives like a Christian. <clears throat> this he that loveth his brother abideth in the light, and there is none occasion of stumbling in him. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness, and walketh in darkness, and knoweth not whither he goeth, because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. Sobering words. These are the words of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we have had a lovely season in prayer. We've had an encouraging, a blessed hour of prayer, sweet hour of prayer. I thank thee for every man that lifted his voice to thee and for every soul here whose heart united with those praying to lift our voices up to thee. Now we're asking thee, to answer the many prayers that were offered this evening, to hear thy word, to take in the truth that is here in thy word, and that we might understand it and obey it to thy everlasting glory, to the building of thy church, to the expansion of thy kingdom. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Please be seated.
The Apostle John tells us twice in this letter that God is love. Not simply that God is loving, which of course he is. <clears throat> that is the outworking of the fact that he is love. That vital declaration is applicable to all three persons of the Godhead. The Father is love. The Son is love. The Holy Spirit is love. Likewise, John writes, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Now, he learned that from Jesus. As we said previously, John was the consummate disciple. When he writes, you hear not simply the voice of his master by the power of the Holy Spirit, but you hear the very words that Christ himself spoke and John was faithful to repeat them. John learned about light from Jesus. He heard Jesus, saw Jesus, ministered with Jesus, and then taught others. He shined the light to them, as every disciple is to do. We're not all called to be apostles. We are all light. And we should be shining in the darkness. Now, Jesus made this clear. He said, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness. We remember here in this letter, John says, walking in darkness, the terrible thing. Jesus said to some Israelites, yet a little while is the light with you. Walk while ye have the light, lest darkness come upon you. For he that walketh in darkness knoweth not whither he goeth. While ye have light, believe in the light, that ye may be the children of light. You see that? It's a beautiful progression. Walk while ye have light. Jesus was the light. He was telling men and women that he was the king in so many words. People heard it and people understood it. They even wanted to stone him for this kind of thing. Lest darkness come upon you. What darkness is that? It's the world of unbelief. Christ was with them, the creator of the universe, the sustainer of of the universe took on humanity and walked in the darkness, shining the glorious light and glory of God. So he says, while you have that light, believe in the light, believe him. That ye may be the children of light. Christians are the children of light. This is no exaggeration. Only God's children, only those born of the Spirit are the children of light. Only those who have new life and have repented of their sins and believed on the Lord Jesus are the children of light. John echoes this in this first letter. He that saith he is in the light professes to be a Christian and hateth his brother, is in darkness even until now. In other words, he's still a slave of the prince of darkness. He's in the kingdom of the enemy while he's with the people of light. 
He that loveth his brother abideth in the light, in the person and the work, the glorious, unchanging truth of God in Jesus Christ. And there is none occasion of stumbling in him. Once again, an echo directly from the Lord Jesus Christ. He that loveth his brother abideth in the light. But he that hateth his brother is in darkness and walketh in darkness and knoweth not whither he goeth because that darkness hath blinded his eyes. All echoes of Jesus. <clears throat> and walking in the light, of course, means that we, believers, regenerate ones, it means that we manifest Christ's light in the darkness. That's why Christ saves us. He doesn't just save us to go to heaven. That, of course, is an important and glorious part of our salvation. But he saves us out of darkness so that we might shine like so many stars of light against the darkness. I have used this before, but I want to use it again because it is burned into my memory and will likely go with me to the grave. But it was the tradition, it was the practice during the 70s and 80s uh, in these huge halls where there would be uh, concerts, rock concerts. <clears throat> when the band finished its last number, of course, all the lights would go out, the band would disappear, and uh, the people would be out there clapping and stomping, but it would start to get quiet. And in this complete darkness, you'd see a lighter, a cigarette lighter, light up. Those cheap plastic ones. And you'd see that little pinpoint of light. And then you'd see another one. And then you'd see another one. Then you'd see four or five. Then you'd see 15, 20, 100, sometimes up to the thousands. And in that light, Wherever that light was shining, you could see people standing around them. I don't know a better metaphor for the Christian life. This is exactly what Jesus intends for us to be. In the darkness of this world, just that one little light began to show people all around them. And the eyes began to get used to seeing it, and pretty soon there was light everywhere. Brethren, that's the kind of parable Jesus would give. Not, of course, cigarette lighters, but he talks about us being leaven that fills up the whole world. We should be shining lights in darkness, not hiding. And one of the ways we do that the best is loving his people. That's what John keeps going back to through his whole letter. He talks about many things, but he can't stay away from love one another. Love one another. Love one another. And all of that is echoes to Jesus. Listen, Jesus told his disciples in his great sermon on the mount, Ye are the light of the world. The very thing that he said of himself. We're not God people in the sense of being a God man. But that Christ who is the light dwells in us by the power of his spirit. We are in union with him who is light. And this idea of light ultimately comes down to the notion of truth in a world of lies. God's truth, his gospel, his law, his truth, unchanging. 
Ye are the light of the world. He doesn't stop there. He says, let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works. Uh Uh-oh. Your life matters. What you think, what you say, what you do matters. And we are to live a life not hidden, but a life that plainly shows forth the glory of Jesus Christ in such a way that our good works, even when people hate us and don't want to live the way we live, they see something that they can't deal with. They see truth. They see honest people. They see people that do good to those who don't deserve good because God showed mercy to them. A life that only has a name tag, Christian, means nothing. The fact is, when we read 1 Corinthians 13 and we hear what love looks like, it's verb after verb after verb. You see love described by what it does. And when we're not doing that, we don't look like Jesus. We don't reflect the one who saved us. We can talk all day about amazing grace and how sweet it is and all of that, but if we're not living according to what the head of the church tells us, we're liars, says John, inspired by the Spirit. That's sober. At least it is to me. And sobering. Let your light So shine. In other words, live, live like a Christian. Live, speak, do things that set you apart. That's one of the great traps for young people. They want to be accepted. They don't want to be thought of as weird. If you are faithful to Christ, you're going to have very few true friends. Because when it starts costing to be a Christian... Some friends, so-called, begin to disappear. Some of our closest friends, when we lived in Louisiana, after the Lord dealt with Myra and me, after about a year or so, they said, we don't want to live like you do. And it was the end of our relationship. It was a shock. It was our first big loss. But it doesn't matter. We have Christ. Brethren, you can't have Christ and the world. It is Christ or the world. And that's going to make you different. Because you walk in the light. They walk in darkness. Light scatters darkness. Darkness doesn't appreciate it. Darkness, as John says in, in the gospel, chapter 1. And, and the darkness, the world comprehended it not when Christ came. Now, <clears throat> why is it that we should let our light shine like that? Well, so that they may see our good works and glorify our Father which is in heaven. He gets all the glory when we walk according to his word. He gets all the glory. It's not us. Oh, deep down in our hearts, we want credit for things. But the whole thing is to say, Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. His word, his infallible, his unchanging word tells me that he loves his people and he shines his light upon them to draw them out of their darkness into his glorious light and kingdom. And then we are to live as citizens of that kingdom in this dark world, holding up our little lighter so the people begin to see. And the more of us there are, the more light there is. And the more we hope that the light will shine and draw 
slaves out of their prison. So the same commands apply to everyone that bear the name of Christian. There are many, many good works that Christ's people can shine forth, but uppermost in John's mind in this letter is this. Jesus said, as the Father hath loved me, so have I loved you. Continue ye in my love. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love. And once again, he brings that issue of the way we live up. And we don't live in our own power. We live by the power of the Spirit that has regenerated us. But it's a power that guides us into, strengthens us, and helps us to walk in Jesus' command. It is God's glorious grace. But that grace, like love, does something. It is the power of God. If ye keep my commandments, ye shall abide in my love, even as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things have I spoken unto you. Listen carefully. <laughs> Some of us would think it's going to say, well, he's making all these commands. Uh, what he's about to say is that I'm giving you these commands so that you'll be miserable and long-faced, watching the world having fun and wishing you could live like them, but knowing that, you know, you probably shouldn't. And that really your, your Christianity is just a miserable little religious thing that doesn't mean much. Or you can believe Jesus. <clears throat> he says, I've spoken these things unto you not to make you a prisoner of everlasting legalism, but that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. Obeying Jesus is where the joy is. And if you're not obeying Christ out of a heart of love, not like, oh, well, I've got a stomping and a foaming preacher, and therefore I do these things, because for some reason he has some kind of mental control over me. No. But because Christ says these things, he says, walk in my ways. That's where the joy is. And if you don't rejoice in walking in his words, there's something terribly wrong. Now, every Christian fights his, his or her flesh. That's the truth. But the fact is, everyone born of God's spirit has the grace to walk in the Spirit. That's why we're commanded by the Scripture. Paul, Galatians, walk in the Spirit and you won't be uh, filling the world with the fruit of the flesh to expand on what he's saying. So, that your joy might be full. So, what's, what are the commandments that he gives first? These joyful commandments, these joy-producing <laughs> commandments. This is my commandment, that you love one another. You cannot know the fullness of joy without obeying that command. You believe that? He's just explained to you, I keep my father's commands and I want you to keep mine. Because I want you to have my joy. He rejoiced in whatever his father commanded him. And if we know and love Christ, we will walk joyfully in obedience to him. Now, when you really get serious about that, you'll find out how much your flesh does not want to do it. And you can become a remarkable excuse maker, a factory of excuses for not doing it. Here's one of the biggest ones. I'm busy. 
Brethren, may God help us because Christ goes on to say, this is my commandment that ye love one another as I have loved you. Greater love hath no man than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. In other words, self-denying, self-sacrificing, others-oriented love. Notice that he uses himself as the example. He's on the way to the cross. And that's where we see the great love of God. The God so loved. Look at the cross. Look at the cross. It's the loudest proclamation of God's love in the history of men. Here is the spotless Lamb of God shedding his blood for those who should be in hell and deserve nothing but hell and damnation. How great he is. That life-sacrificing love of Christ is the love and the light that we're to show to the world. Where does it begin? Well, it begins with us loving him back. How do we love him back? Obeying what he says. And what's the first commandment on the list? Loving each other. I hope that's clear. <clears throat> John says, But whoso keepeth his word, in him verily is the love of God perfected. Hereby know we that we are in him. He that saith he abideth in him ought himself also so to walk, even as he walked. He walked in his father's law perfectly. That's where we could see that the law actually is about righteous love, not just chains. Whoso keepeth his word, who walks in his commandment to love God's people. In him is the love of God perfected. It's clear that God's working in a soul who's living like that. Living like that. Now we've been considering God's love as it is expressed by his people. And of course, uh, at this point, it's late in the message to say this is the title. But this is Loving or Hating Christ People, Part 5. Now, may the revelation that God is love, and it is revelation. May the revelation that God is love, that he gave us his son, and that his son died for us and lives in us, fill us with love for Christ and for his people. Fill us, not just teeth grinding, not just, okay, I have to. No, there ought to be some joy in us, great joy in loving Christ's people in a Christ-like way. And may the Holy Spirit shed abroad God's love in our heart through Christ Jesus, our blessed Savior, our light and our love. So, we'll take up where we left off. <clears throat> we had started a major heading called the definition and description of love itself. And in part four of this series, we begin by examining the definition and description of love. We defined love as that self-denying, self-sacrificing, and others-oriented act of treating others according to God's law at our expense for their well-being. That's one of the reasons that in the New Covenant, God's law, which Israel broke and was on tablets of stone, is written in our hearts. I mean, you have to stop and think about the law. Just what a terrible thing is it that God is saying, here's my new covenant. I'm writing it 
where you can't get rid of it. No. Paul understood this, Romans 13. He makes abundantly clear, as we have said a couple of times already. He defines love, describes love by the law in Romans 13. So, we also did a much too brief description of love by considering 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 8. Since God is love, a biblical description of love must by default be a description of God's love. You follow me with that? God is love. If by the Holy Spirit, Paul describes love as we ought to be showing it, as the Corinthians should have been showing it, then that love by default is a description of God's love. What other love would Paul be describing to them? <clears throat> now, we had to move really quickly through the description, and I certainly did not do it justice. But I was simply trying to make the point that when you look at this and and it's described in the way that Paul lays it out. Uh, there we see how we ought to be treating each other. What kind of love it is that we're to be manifesting. But we were able to get at least some idea of what God's love looks like in his people. In that very famous portion of 1 Corinthians. Now. Last time we rushed through the last four items and that is where we left off. And I wanted to come back to those four items because as I did not do justice to, the, to that uh, extraordinary passage of Scripture. Um, so I really uh, was very short on these last four things. And I would like to, take, like to take a few moments to go through that before we get to our one application. <clears throat> The first one is beareth all things. Christian love beareth all things. The Greek word translated beareth means to bear up against difficulties. To bear up against storms, trials, afflictions. It means to stand. It means to endure. And we're actually going to get to the word endure shortly. Christian love will put up with annoyance, trials, afflictions, or difficulties. In other words, it puts up with aggravations, with the shortcomings in others. It understands, the believer understands his own flesh fights him all the time. If he would stop and think, now this is a brother or a sister in Christ. I understand that battle, that war that's going on within that person. I may not have their temptations. I may not have the things that they struggle with. But I sure understand what it's like to struggle. So let me endure some of their rough edges. In other words, this kind of love is an enduring, strong love because it keeps standing despite the challenges. And when we have the challenges, we generally give up pretty quickly. And we'll give up on people pretty quickly. <clears throat> we need to be cautious about that. There are times when we have to separate from some. There's no question about it. There may be biblical things uh, defined in Scripture that would be past our ability to say, I can fellowship with this one. 
But you better check that. Make sure you're not too quick on the draw. There may be somebody in the room thinking the same thing about you. <clears throat> you may be thinking of yourself as the bastion of purity in the congregation. The bastion of real Christianity while others are sitting and thinking, how do I put up with this guy? Or this woman? Christian love. It goes much further than simply putting up with people, but at least needs to do that. <laughs> Christian love prepares a person to bear with meekness, suffering for the sake of Christ. This love does that. It bears that fruit within us. Christian love. Paul told the Corinthians that even though he had the spiritual authority to ask them to support him financially, he said, I suffer all things lest we should hinder the gospel of Christ. Whatever the situation was there, Paul was not going to say, you, you, you all need to sustain us. We're here preaching the word of God to you. He could have done that. It was perfectly within his biblical grounds, his biblical rights. He even gives scripture to say, you should and could be supporting us. But you know what? I have not used that authority and urged you to give us a penny. And what he says right here, and it, why? Because I suffer all. That's the same word here, beareth. I am bearing up I'm building tents I've gone to work for the privilege of preaching the gospel to you that's the idea he was in that having to suffer and endure an aggravation he had to work with both of his hands and in, in his weariness, in his exhaustion from work, he preached the gospel. He wasn't in it for the money and he wouldn't let the money get in the way of the gospel work. Brother Clarence and I agreed on that very early on. Money issue comes up, let the money go. Preach Christ. So, <clears throat> Paul took up a trade to keep from being a financial burden to these believers so that he could preach the gospel. He did this for his gospel testimony. Oh, my friends, with the direction this nation is going, God's people may face trials, afflictions, persecution just for wearing the name of Christ. For bearing the testimony of Christ. For preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. For preaching the king and his kingdom in the face of those who want to rule the world. The regenerate Christ's people will bear up to the consequences of living a separated holy life. There is no way to live a holy life according to this book and not come into conflict with the world in some way. You'd have to go live in a cave and never see another human being. And even then, if you had any conscience at all, you'd eventually get put out with yourself. The regenerate will bear up. And that's the idea. Christian love bears up. It stands. Well, preaching to the nations that Jesus is King of kings and the Lord of lords will take real men. And real women with them. 
Secondly, Christian love believeth all things. The Greek word translated believeth has numerous definitions and nuanced meanings. In this context, it means to consider something to be true and therefore worthy of one's trust. You believe something to be true and you trust. You rest your confidence, your faith upon that truth. Every Christian comes into the kingdom by doing exactly that. We believe the gospel. There's no entrance to the kingdom without believing the gospel. <clears throat> Christian love never stops believing the gospel. It is an enduring. It is a bearing all things kind of believing. It never stops believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. It never stops believing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, come in the flesh. It never stops believing that he was and is the God-man, truly God, truly man in one person. It never stops believing that the church is the congregation of regenerate souls and that protecting her and edifying her and sacrificing for her is the fruit of the believer's regeneration. You think you can do without the church? I don't know what Bible you're reading, but you're not reading the one that Christ gave us. If you don't love what Christ loves, you have every reason to believe that you are outside the kingdom and he loves his church. And it can be a mess. Read the first two chapters of Revelation, uh, chapter two and three of Revelation. And you will see out of seven churches, Jesus rebukes five of them, threatens one of them with his candlestick being taken away. And it's the one that looks the best on the surface. My friend, we like to say we believe in Jesus, but I fear, I know it's not true of all, but I fear that many think that somehow just keeping the idea that I believe in Jesus delivers you from believing everything that he said. You just have to believe in Jesus. Well, if you believe in Jesus, you believe what he says. If he says, come unto me, you came to him. If he says, keep my commandments, love my people. Well, that's not somebody far off for all of us people sitting in this room. Certainly, we love people in other locations. We love brothers and sisters everywhere. We just spent a good deal of time praying for a brother in Virginia. We love God's people wherever they are, but we have to do with us. Christian love never stops believing that the church is God's people, that he's building it. Christian love believes all gospel and kingdom truths. It not only believes in the triune God, it believes that loving one another is Christ's command and that every believer should love and believe the best of God's people. And why should we when we're so flawed? Why? Because Jesus loves us and he's given us what we need to walk with him. Some of us are slower learners than others. Instead of being irritated, we ought to be thankful for the privilege of encouraging and edifying a brother and doing what we can to think the best. I'm not saying we get to the point to where we become blind to somebody's sin. If we love them and they are in a biblically defined sin, love will graciously and in love Reprove them. I thank God for the reproofs that I have had here. 
They never feel good. Never. But they always produce good. That's what Hebrews chapter 12 tells us. It's never enjoyable. <laughs> but it bears the fruit of righteousness. Well, <clears throat> if we truly love people, Christian love then refuses bad reports about its fellow members until such things are proven true or false. Christian love believes that we can mortify sinful habits because the word of God tells us not only that we can, not only that we have been given what is necessary to do so, but we're commanded to mortify the deeds of the body. Do you believe that? You're messing with my idea of grace. God gives you grace so that you can walk with him. Grace should be the power in your engine to serve him. Grace is that which motivates you to obey him. It is God that worketh in you to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's never in your own power. It's in the power he has given you. But you have that as ready access. Believe him and walk in it. <clears throat> it believes, Christian love believes that God hears our prayers. It believes that. It's a true belief. It believes all things, all righteous things, all good things, all biblical things, things that we can prove to be God's truth because of the word of God. It believes that when we fall, Christ picks us up and puts us back on our feet in the path to the celestial city. Dr. Lloyd-Jones said something many, many decades ago that when I read it, stays with me. He says the believer is on the path. He's going up the mountain. He's going through the difficulties. He falls, but he doesn't roll down at the bottom of the mountain. He's only fallen in the path. And the Lord helps him get up and go back on the road. You don't start over. You get up from where you are and go on with Christ. We believe. Christ believes all. Christ loves and believed all biblical things. And by his grace, we should do our best to do the, the same. By faith in him, trusting his grace alone. This is not legalism. This is learning how to live so that we can get the fullness of joy. How's your joy meter tonight? Is it, is it over here toward empty? Or is it moving toward the full mark? Jesus wanted us to have full joy. It's walking with him. It's obeying him that fills us with genuine joy. Well, this kind of love hopes all things. Christian love never loses hope. Christian love ne never loses hope. Now, there are times when it feels like it, but it doesn't give it up because it is a hope that comes from our regeneration, from our union with Christ, and from the unchanging truths of God's promises and glorious words in Scripture. The Greek word translated hope means to look forward with confidence. This is very important. To look forward with confidence to that which is good and beneficial. In other words, we often have a view of hope that considers the possibility of our hope being dashed. Oh, I hope I get that job, but I might lose it. Oh, I, I hope I get that spouse, but so far I haven't. Maybe I won't. 
It's not that kind of thing. I want that bicycle. I want a bicycle. Well, I'm, but mom and dad might not get it for me. Right? That's kind of the way we think of hope. There's always kind of a trap door of, but it might not work. That is not the kind of hope we're talking about here. This is a confident expectation. A confident expectation for what is good. Why? Because we've been given God's word. We have his promises in it. We know that human beings can fail and fall in their promises, but not God. Never God. Not God. We often have a wrong view that doesn't really have a confident expectation in it. It's just, oh, it, mm. it's generally tied to the idea of luck. And luck is not a Christian thought. There's no such thing as luck if there's a sovereign God. Wishing me good luck is not what I want to hear. <laughs> Here's what I'd like to hear. I'm praying for you. Thank you. All right. There's no such thing as luck. I don't know why Christians still walk around saying that to each other. It's a well-wishing of sorts. I know that. Generally, what's being said is said to encourage. You know, but the point is, there isn't any. That's a pagan idea. How about Godspeed? May God help you in what you're doing. That's, that's better. If there's a sovereign God, there's no such thing as just blind luck. No, we have a confident and an expectant hope. <clears throat> Our hope is everlasting life in Christ Jesus. We cannot lose it because of him and what he has accomplished. Our hope for everlasting life is that Jesus Christ the Lord, Jesus Christ the God-man, was crucified. He was resurrected. He is reigning in glory and he's coming again. That is as certain. In fact, it's more certain than the sun coming up tomorrow. That day will come when there will never be another sunrise. And the world's hopes will be forever gone. But the promise in Christ will always stand sure. It's a confident hope. Not because of ourselves. It's not because we get in the closet or we get somewhere and we hype ourselves up. We psych ourselves out. I'm going to make this happen. If it's to be, it's up to me. It's not like that. It's God has said this and I believe him. And therefore, I wait expectantly for it to happen. We should be waiting expectantly, day by day, for Jesus' return. Mm. We should be looking forward to the glory of heaven. Yes, there are many struggles along the way. Yes, there may be times when we even question whether we are truly Christians or not. But it's not because the hope is shaky. We begin to wonder about ourselves and that's when we need to look at Christ and say, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, my emotions, but wholly trust in Jesus' name. That's where secure, that's where sound, expectant hope is. God has proven that he keeps his word. Oh, move faster, Jeff. So our confident hope is that we rise again because he rose again. He told us that. We look expectantly for his return for us because the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world Looking for that blessed hope. For that confident, we would have a confident expectation that the day is coming 
when Christ will rend the heavens, we'll hear that trumpet. And there will be the opening of the heavens and Christ will come with all the angels and his throne will be established in this world for judgment. Again, this confident expectation loves in such a way that it looks expectantly for uh, fellow believers to finish their course. Do you do that? I mean, I know you must hope that for you. Do you hope that for your brothers and sisters? Do you say, oh, I'm praying for brother so-and-so. I'm praying for sister so-and-so. I'm hoping that I can find some way to edify or encourage or build them up in the faith. They're, they're lagging a little bit. Brother, how can I help you? How can I pray for you? What burden can I carry with you? Are we expectantly hoping that our brothers and sisters will grow in the things of the Lord. When I read this book, it sounds to me like Jesus and God are going to keep working on us till we look more and more like Jesus. Do you believe that? Christian love does. It does. It believes that Jesus is going to fulfill his promise and that the moment is coming when we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Expect that. Well, I'm sinning. Ah, you noticed? Well, Jesus saved sinners. And he shed his blood. That your sins may be all washed away. Well, this kind of love, this Christian love, looks for ways to encourage others in their hope and thinking the best of them in the most difficult of times. Finally, Christian love endures all things. It endures all things. You've noticed, Paul's got this little refrain. It beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. He's talking about a big love. Christian love is big. It's as big as Christ. Christian love endures all things. The Greek word here translated endureth means to maintain a belief or a course of action in face of opposition. It stands one's ground. I can tell you, at least of the mothers that I know, if they got a notice, they looked outside, they saw police cars everywhere, police and, and black-garbed soldiers were coming in, and they're saying, we're, we're taking your children. If you people believe this nonsense about Jesus, they need to be helped by the government. I can tell you, there'd be some mothers do everything they could to stand against that whole army. And I trust every dad that's faithful would do the same. Um, I'm for peace, but they're for war, as the psalmist said. It stands its ground. Christian love stands its ground. It continues to bear up despite the difficulties. It continues to bear up even in suffering for Christ's sake. His people have done this throughout the ages. Read the books about the martyrs of Christ's people. Sometimes I just, I read that and think, what would I do, Lord? We've been comfortable, y'all. And I mean comfort. Everyone here has grown up in the lap of luxury compared to most of the world. We think it's the billionaires that have the big life. Our lives are rich, rich, rich compared to most the way most people live. My friends, we haven't known much for suffering, but suffering for Christ. Not giving up, standing your ground, holding out, saying, Christ, or do whatever you'll have. It's easy to say those things. Something different when they're saying, 
<clears throat> Deny Christ or we're shooting this child. Deny Christ. We're going to burn your house down while you watch. And then we'll shoot your family members one at a time. Read Fox's Book of Martyrs. Read about the Scottish Covenanters and the horrifying things that were done. Horrifying. And they stood. And it cost. But they had Christ. They had an expectant hope that whatever was on the other side of that barrel that was aiming at them was Christ. Christian love endures all things. It stands its ground. I don't generally like to quote or make references to Hollywood's movies. But there was a scene that struck me in one that I saw decades ago. <clears throat> a group of men have been sent behind enemy lines to try to find a soldier that is captive. And they go through numerous horrific trials and battles to try to find this man. Well, they finally do, but there comes a, a final battle with uh, the German army. And the man who had led this group of men, one of them after another, just died in the way he watched his men going. And he was mortally wounded. And they took him, and they prop, he, he propped himself up. <clears throat> and as he looked, he saw a German tank coming directing, directly toward him. He's on the ground. He's bleeding. He's dying. He reaches into his holster and pulls out his forty-five. And as he's lying there, he just keeps shooting at the tank. People would say, that's foolish. He was still in the fight. He was still in the fight. And he just kept shooting as long as he had rounds. Brethren, that's enduring. That's standing your ground. He was ready for the tank to roll over him. He was ready for the fire from the cannon. He was ready for the machine gun in the front to, to blow him, to cut him into pieces. But he just kept firing. Brethren, we need to keep firing. We need to stand and say, it doesn't matter how big the enemy is. It doesn't matter how bad Goliath looks. I will sling the stones of the gospel. I will sling the stones of God's word. I will take the sword of the spirit and learn how to use it to the best of my ability and try to hack everything in front of me just like Samuel hacked up Agag for the glory and the goodness of Christ. I'm not talking about actually cutting someone up, but I'm saying that Samuel sure did. What I want us to gather is that Christian love doesn't back down. It endures because Christ's love endures. Well, I will save my application till next week. And then we will find out what some acts of love and some acts of hate look like. <clears throat> but brethren, the love of Christ is beyond anything that we can imagine. Jesus Christ stumbled under his cross. Do, do, you, do you think about that? The Lord of glory, the one who spoke this incredible universe into existence has taken on a manhood that when beaten and scourged and spat upon he couldn't carry his instrument of death to that place 
but he kept going. He had to have some help. Somebody else picked up part of it to carry it for him. But he walked directly to where he was going to to be crucified. And to the very last, he could say, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. He did good to his enemies in prayer before he gave up the ghost. Christian love stands. Christ stood all the way. So brethren, what do you call love? What does it look like? Does it look like 1 Corinthians? Do you measure what you call love by what the word of God says? Or is it just how you feel? You need to nurture and feed your mind in this book, in this truth, and make sure you've got a hold of what God says love is. And then stand. Stand. Bear up to all things. Believe all things. Hope all things. Endure all things for the glory of Christ. Amen. Father, this love is beyond what our flesh can produce. We can't make that happen. But thy Holy Spirit within us and the light of thy word, the lamp to our feet. Oh, it tells us. It shows us. It not only describes, explains, it shows us the verbs of love and what it does. Help us to love thee, O Christ. Help us to love one another. May it truly exist in our souls and may we pour it out. When we're able, help us to gush it out on thy people. And we pray it all that Christ would be exalted. And in his name, amen. Well, brethren, please stand with me. And the Lord make you to increase and abound in love one toward another and toward all men, even as we do toward you. To the end, he may establish your hearts unblameable in holiness before God, even our Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with all his saints. We have a great hope for that moment, do we not? Amen.